is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. In Conversation is sponsored by the Seaborne, Broughton and Walford Foundation, a charity that has been successfully supporting the performing arts in Australia since 1986. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. A happy new year to you as we embark on a new season of In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Well, Sydney in January is synonymous with the Sydney Festival, which is always the perfect way to kick off a year of the arts. And I'm delighted today to be joined by the brains behind the festival. Olivia Ansell has been the director of Sydney Festival for three years. She brings over 20 years' experience as an artist, key creative, promoter and producer, working across tourism, media and entertainment. Her previous credits include working as Head of Contemporary Performance at the Sydney Opera House and being voted one of Vivid's top creative catalysts. Olivia Ansell, thank you for taking time out of Sydney Festival to be in conversation with me today. Pleasure to be with you, Simon. Well, I'm looking at the festival schedule. You've got over 130 events across 24 days. How do you even begin to put something like that together? (laughs) Well, many people say to me, um, it must be a sprint. And I said, indeed it is. You you start on, well, I kind of, I'm, I've already started on 2025, but as soon as this festival finishes on 1 February, you absolutely put on those sneakers and start sprinting to the finish line. And my first finish line is October when we launch the 25 festival, if that makes sense. So, yes. And that's in, so that's like the, the 10th month of the year, but the brochures go to print around, you know, the ninth month of the year and then you have to sign off around August. So from 1 February to August, I feel as though the sneakers are on, you're sprinting around your local city, nationally across the country, throughout the South Pacific, of course, and then other parts of the world as well. So it's collecting ideas and then sort of extrapolating them and placing them into different categories and and genres and and location types to, to spread the program right across Greater Sydney and balance it. Because mm, it's not just the Sydney city, is it? It's uh, it's all of Sydney. It, it's all of Sydney. It's uh, north to south to east to west. It's free. It's ticketed. It's multi-genre, multi-different audience demographics as well, different price points and different sized venues, finding the right mm. show to fit the right space and then finding the act that can perform on the dates that you need them to be here in Australia. So, mm. um, yeah, it, it's quite the puzzle. A lot of interacting spreadsheets, I suspect. <laughs> Indeed. So what do you see as the main mission? that the festival has? The main mission, certainly whilst I'm the festival director, is to exhilarate Sydney with an exciting summer of art, to, to transport Sydney-siders and visitors to this city, to see the city differently and to, to reveal the identity and uh, the history, the future, the, the, the conversations that are in the zeitgeist of place, architecture, natural and built, of stories, thousands of stories that exist uh, to these lands for, for, for thousands of years and also stories about our future. Now, I know a parent can't have a favourite child, but uh, what are the shows that you're most excited about for this year? Well, if you ask me today and knowing uh, what's opening... A different to- answer tomorrow. 
<laughs> Today, I'm really excited about tomorrow, which is Il Tabaro, the Puccini opera. Ooh. One act opera. It's part of the Il Tritico that Puccini wrote. And this opera was written in 1918, and we're staging it on the Carpentaria lightship that was built in 1917 at Cockatoo Island. And I often say it's the opera on the harbour that everybody can afford because it's free and it's down in front of the National Maritime Museum. We've got six singers on the boat, this majestic lightship, and an orchestra floating on a barge, beautifully lit with a canopy over the top, so they're fully enclosed. And it's just spectacular. We're projecting the surtitle onto the side of a submarine. <laughs> it, it, it really is a true festival piece to see the opera done this way. And it's free and we can accommodate about a 1,000 people a night. Yeah, well, I have to ask, if I asked you tomorrow, what would be the answer? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look, so many things. We um, we have a Cambodian circus titled White Gold from CM Reap and they use all their traditional woven baskets and instruments that are indicative and reflective of their culture doing traditional circus tricks. And I've had my eye on this uh, work for some time, this company. They compose all their own original music and they were spotted by a promoter on in New York. So they've just played Broadway, they're off to Montreal, and then they're coming to Sydney. That also opens tomorrow night. Fantastic. Well, there's a couple of great umbrellas that you've got. Um, one of them I want to ask you about first is called The Thirsty Mile, which is a wonderful title. How have you come up with that? The Thirsty Mile, well, obviously that's a riff off The Hungry Mile. Oh, of course, yes. And, uh, it's not because we all need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be both, really, couldn't it? Um, the Hickson Road uh, and all of those wharves down there are part of our our history, our working wharves history of the early 20th century. In the 1930s, all the Stevie Doors and the workers would come down looking for, for work on the ports and on the boats. And during the Great Depression, many were turned away. But, um, you know, the Rocks had Sydney's very first schools and churches and childcare centres because that's where the working hub was. And the most languages in Sydney were always spoken in the mm. Rocks area because of the people coming in through trade. It was called the Hungry Mile because of the Great Depression. And so we sort of making a cheeky nod back to that time, but a big cheeky nod forward and say, what are we thirsty to see change? Ah. And, you know, there are so many things socially, environmentally, politically we want to see change. So, look, it's a bit of a catch-all and we've got some wonderful kind of cheeky nods back to the 1930s in our cabaret programming and in some of our classical music as well. Mm, now, talking of that classical music, there's this wonderful series of concerts uh, towards the end of the festival called Temperament. Now, it's all about J.S. Bach. Tell me why you've decided to focus on Bach for that. Well, Simon, I was uh, flying to London uh, back in April and I watched the film Tar starring Kate Blanchett. And for those that have seen the film, you'll remember that opening scene when uh, Kate, her character, is a lecturer, an esteemed lecturer. She's a conductor and lecturer at Juilliard. And uh, she's she's giving a masterclass and one of the students says that they refuse to play the music of Bach because Bach has been cancelled. Mm. Um and anyway, I, I sort of pondered that thought. It's it's a terrific scene. It's it's a nail biting scene, and I she really demolishes him. She she really sort of demolished the 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 students' sort of um, theory around that. You know, it's hard to cancel someone when they're not alive to defend themselves. But um, I kind of. I thought, wow, like, can you really cancel Bach? It'd be like saying that you cancelled Einstein and mathematics. And, of course, mathematics informed the, the science that we, we live and swear by. Yes. Um, and then you sort of went on, I went on this lineage and this research of every composer and every musician who's been influenced by Bach. And it's immeasurable, you know, um, not just the classical composers that 
uh, have been influenced by Bach, but even contemporary songwriters from, you know, Roberta Flack and Paul McCartney, even Lady Gaga, one of her latest mm. tracks is reflective yeah, of Bach. And it, it's just, it's absurd. And, and so I thought, can you really cancel Bach? And it was a few weeks later, I was watching the Bach Academy perform at Government House and I just went home and just started nerding out, listening to as many Bach pieces as I could. And that's where it came from. I said, let's do a week of celebration and deconstruction of Bach. We'll invite artists to celebrate the great composer. We'll ask artists to pull Bach apart and we'll go on a journey. So we have quite the program. It starts with the Bach Academy. Then it goes through to the Australian Chamber Orchestra and they honour they honor several different composers, including Australian ones like Eleanor Katz-Jernan, who's been in influenced by Bach. Then we get a little bit deeper. So Andrew Bacania is um, doing a, a session called Bach in Colour mm. and it's purely a cappella, uh, a little bit in the idea of North style or Swingle singer style, mm. style. And he does take on all the kind of contemporary songwriters and gospel right. that also, you know, he, he says has lineages to Bach. Then Benjamin Skepper, who's a modern contemporary composer who's cut his chops playing all of Bach's toys. He's doing Preladium Y Fuga, a brand new composition that's very electroacoustic. And then Ensemble Apex, they are doing Bach in the Dark. They're doing all the songs close to Bach's death and uh, music by George Crumb as well, you know, like really dystopian. And you're invited to lie on yoga mats by candlelight and, oh, wow. and listen to Bach late in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's having – oh, and um, Paul from Brandenburg Orchestra. My goodness, he's really pulled it out. He's collaborating with an a dancer from Paris, Silveri. And Silveri was a leading dancer with the Paris Opera Ballet and then became a painter and a, a stunning visual artist, as you do in France. He's going to paint a mural while Paul and um, fellow musicians perform. And at the end of the concert, one could buy the mural if they so wished. And he'll be there at the ACO doing broad brushstrokes with his hands and his body, painting this mural and dancing across the page to bark. So, look, we, we've got... We've got everything in it, Simon. <laughs> right. Well, we'll definitely hear more about that and more about the Sydney Festival this year's festival a bit later in the program. But, Olivia, we have to have our first choice of music now. And, well, this is an absolutely gorgeous one. What have you chosen for us here and why? Look, the first choice, you've got a friend by Carol King. I mean, what a songwriter. Her album Tapestry still remains one of the, the best and most popular albums of all time. And I just love that movement in the 70s of, of women in folk like Joni Mitchell, Carol mm. King, who just knocked it out of the park with one incredible piece of music after another. And then all these sort of male songwriters begging to, to ask Carol if they can cover the same song, like James Taylor, for example. And then they did it together. But um, yeah, look, I I still love Carol's version. I love James's version, but I think Carol's is the best for me. It, it's one of those songs where um, when chips are down <laughs> or, um, you know, you could be on a long flight somewhere. And it's, it's interesting, you know, as a festival director, you spend a lot of time in solitude for all the um, company that you have in mm. January and the, the it seems like fanfare, doesn't yeah, it? and then it stops. <laughs> and then it stops. But I would spend most of my time when not in the office in solitude in a theatre on a train or a plane or a bus, you know, and, and sometimes they're quite gruelling trips because you'll, you'll go to any length to see that show or that exhibition in any part of the world and you know you've got to bring that thing home. And so um, it is definitely songs like this that make me remember I've got company. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing 
winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you have to do is call, and I'll be there. You've got a friend. The immortal Carol King with You've Got a Friend, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, Sydney Festival director Olivia Ansell. Olivia, show business was definitely in your blood. I believe your grandparents were involved in vaudeville back in the day. They were, yes. So my, um, well, my great-grandfather, James Bell Sr., he was a ringmaster in the very early circuses of the early 1900s in Australia. Then my grandfather, James Bell Jr., he was also a circus artist. He was a juggler and a magician. And whilst it's not very sort of well thought of now, he was a Punch and Judy artist. Um, and that kind of puppetry show, of course, is is not what we watch now, of course, just acknowledging that. But um, <laughs> he, he was a very talented Punch and Judy artist that performed this puppet show all around the country. Uh, but he would saw people in half and he would juggle the most extraordinary things. And he was one of the featured acts at the Tivoli. The, the famous Tivoli here in Sydney, and that's where he met his wife, his partner, uh, Joan Ashton, who was a wonderful soprano and also a lead at the Tivoli. So, And then my, my parents, uh, my mother was a dancer, an entertainer, was on bandstand and, and worked in many musicals, this sort of thing, and um, it was also a wonderful, beautiful modern dancer. And my father is a composer and, and, and a jazz musician. So I think they were delighted at the thought that I might do something exotic like law or accountancy. <laughs> As something with a paycheck at the end of the day. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, and so um, I, you know, and that would have that would have made them so proud. Uh, so I always grew up with this cloud over me, like, oh no, she's going to um, she's go into the industry. Into the we, we've done everything we can. We've, we've we've tried to get her the best schooling. We've done everything we can because we really wanted to have one of those exotic jobs in an office. And but the absurdity is that you can't grow up in that kind of environment and not by osmosis, grow a love of it. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, the generations continue. <laughs> so were you putting on festivals and shows in your backyard with the Look, neighbourhood children? I was more, uh, I mean, we, we had a recording studio downstairs in the house. Oh, goodness. And that so would, it was, it was that on would, site. <laughs> oh, that, that's right. So that would go all day and all night. I mean, in those days, musicians worked, that they would gig till one o'clock in the morning on any night of the week. Then they would drive and go and do a session somewhere. I mean, things like- At your like, house. Yes. At, at our house, things like OHS didn't exist in those days, and the, the live music scene was alive. Mm. Orchestras, bands, you know, um, the digital era had not arrived, right? So, um, recording would happen all through the night, gigs, that sort of thing. At the back of the house upstairs, there was a rehearsal studio, and my mother ran, um, once she sort of finished her performing career, she ran a dance school, but she also choreographed professionally. So artists would turn up for rehearsals in the evening. And I distinctly remember the four tracks, which was a barbershop quartet that became human nature, would turn really? up after dinner about 8, 8.30 and go into the studio at the rear of the house and rehearse all of their choreography with my mother. So there would be barbershops rehearsing upstairs, music being recorded downstairs, and I would answer the door. And I'd be eight or nine years of age and they'd ask me to make sure everyone had a coffee or a cup of tea a biscuit, glass of water. And I think I grew a love of talking to artists at that yeah. young age and asking, you know, how they were, what they were working on. I, I too was an artist till the age of 30 and then I went into curating and producing. But there was this weird thing when I did swap into curating and producing that I felt really at home and I reflect on my sort of 10-year-old self 
and think of myself in the green rooms chatting to everybody about their practice. And it, it kind of made sense. I landed where I did. But you were a performing artist at one stage. So what were you learning to do when I, you were a child? Look, uh, I, mean, no, I was dragged to violin lessons and taught the Suzuki technique. And with a father who was such a great pianist, it was just too um, harrowing learning the violin under his watch. And my grandmother was a very talented violinist. And I decided at the age of seven <laughs> that I was no match for some of the other Suzuki protégés. So I retired the violin and um, at the ripe old age of seven. At the ripe old age of seven, you know, I can't remember which book that was. <laughs> and I decided to really pursue dance and drama. And I I took on a career primarily in dance. I was I was most enamored by classical ballet and modern dance. And that's where I grew a love of postmodern music too, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later. So I, I did all of my training and also maintaining that kind of love of drama meant that I could be a versatile artist. So you'd move from performing, I was in the Ballet of Opera Australia for many years. I would perform in musicals, uh, modern dance projects, all kinds of um, different engagements, to be honest. In Sydney as an artist at the time that I was, versatility was key to being employed mm long term. And I would quite often get asked to direct or choreograph different segments and events, this sort of thing. So yeah, that, that sense of arranging was definitely there through that time of my career. And, and it was sort of in my late twenties, I'd self-produced a few things and people would approach me and say, can you put this together or that together or come and curate? And that interest just overtook, you know, and mm. you can't really be some can manage it beautifully, but I found it challenging to be on stage and off stage at the same time. Like the head can only take in so much. So huge kudos to those that do do it, you know. Mm. Uh, was there anyone in particular in that formative period, like, yeah, so when you when you were a kid, you know, beyond your parents that you, you looked to as a sort of a mentor? In the early days, I had a wonderful classical ballet coach, Kim Trainer, who was trained in Vaganova, which is a Russian ballet technique. And interestingly, most sort of dance schools in Australia and institutions teach a British form of ballet. It's called the Royal Academy of, of Dancing. Nothing wrong with that technique, but musically it teaches you to sort of um, to put the emphasis on the landing in, in into a downbeat, if you like. And the, the technique of Vaganova just really was a revelation to me, the way it changed the line of the body. It changed the way we involved ourselves with the tempo, like the tempo of Vaganova made you spring like a gazelle in the air. And it dawned on me that it's not just about the physicality of your body and how you train the body, it's how you train your mind to work with the music. And when I realised that Vaganova teaches you to elevate to a light, that the mm. allegro aspect of Vaganova technique was so ingrained in the music and it, the musicology of it, I, I, I found that so enlightening and riveting and I became a better dancer because of it. Mm. Our next piece of music now, Olivia, and uh, well, this one I think is from the recording studio at your parents' place. Yes. So I I think I was about eight years old. It was, it was 1985 
And my father and Peter Wall, um, who also has a relationship with 2MBS. He does FM. indeed, yes. A <laughs> um, few years fa- ago now. <laughs> exactly, that's right. My, my father and Peter Wall were, were co-composing a new scene. They, they did a lot of work together and they were writing a new new scene for the ABC and they went up to Newcastle. They spent some time on holidays together, sort of putting the bones of it down. And then they took it into the ABC and they kept working on it and the demos just kept circulating, you know, till two, three, four, five in the morning. I'm One night I remember getting out of bed and asking, if they could please turn it down because it had been going all night long, and some of us um, are trying to get some sleep here, right? And and it's and that's the Tony Hassel <laughs> and Peter. Did Walt. they know what headphones were? <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, I don't think they cared. You know, I think the kids just had to fit in with everyone's uh, lifestyle. It was yeah. a very different form of parenting I then. Guess so. You know, and there was no soundproofing. I mean, there, there was soundproof to an extent, but look, you could still hear it. The whole house yeah. was booming. But look, that went on to become an extremely successful news scene that the whole country love and adore, and. In, in in numerous ways, it's not on air at the moment, but um, Pendulum, which are a very cool electronic music fit out, did a remix of it in two thousand and ten, and it went to, to number one in the charts here in Australia. So, uh, to to sort of be right there at the coalface of hearing a brand new demo, and then decades later still know that that demo became a household piece of music that woke people up in the morning to good news and bad news, was was quite a moment for our family. I feel like I should be Richard Moorcroft right now, but I'm sorry to say I'm not. That was the ABC News theme that first appeared around the mid-80s and, uh, well, it was on air for about 19 years, Olivia, is That's that right? right. Yes. Quite a long time, I think more than any other. Uh, Olivia Ansell, uh, that was her choice, and Olivia is the director of the Sydney Festival. Get along to sydneyfestival.org.au to find out everything, and there's a lot that's on as part of this year's festival. Uh, Olivia, going back to that sort of early professional period where you are working, I mean, are you getting jobs straight out of school? Do you do any formal training beyond Oh, yes. Level? No, no. So um, I went to university in Brisbane. I, I did a, an associate degree in dance at QUT. And prior to that, after sort of um, graduating through a ballet school, like full-time ballet school, if you like, I did my HSC by correspondence. I went to New York and studied at Alvin Ailey American Dance Centre and participated in a lot of festivals in the summer. Jacob's Pillow, the American Dance Festival. And I had the pleasure of collaborating and learning choreography by really notable postmodern choreographers like Merce Cunningham, Twyla Tharp, mm. Donald Byrd, uh, Lynn Jackson, who um, was one of the head teachers and choreographers at Alvin Ailey. 
And that really kind of shaped my awareness and understanding of, of postmodern choreography and postmodern music. Uh, but I realized I needed to come back and there was more study to do. So going to university was was a wonderful experience. Mm. And I'm really grateful for, for that, that, that I did do that now. And there was a new wave of movement coming through even then, which is more of a release and freeform technique. I began working professionally before I went to university and I found it quite hard balancing the temptation of wanting to go out and work versus no, no, I must study. I've got study. to learn. I can Yes, I can yeah. We all think that, don't we? Yeah. And um, the lecture But especially is, if you're actually getting the job. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and a couple of times I did just insist on performing. Like I, I got a lot of work with Opera Queensland. I performed in several of their operas, but, and um, the one I really loved performing in was was Handel's Julius Caesar. Some of the lecturers were very cranky with me that I was running off to do that. But again, some of the connections I made during Julius Caesar in 1998 are lifelong professional connections that I'm still working with now, in fact, even in this festival. So when I look back, I don't regret some of those choices. <laughs> mm. You're already talking about choreography and learning about the choreography. I mean, is it something in the back of any dancer's mind that the career is going to be more limited and shorter than, say, if you're a violinist? Completely. That was always in the back of my mind and was drummed into me by my parents. And I think because I was quite disciplined and almost um, like an overachiever to my own detriment, you know, like I was too disciplined. I never had my head out of a Sydney Morning Herald or a Financial Times. Or I was always sort of concerned that what, what was that second career going to be, you know, and I knew that I wanted to feed my brain with as much as possible. So I, I certainly didn't just live in the moment. I do regret, though, when I look back on my 20s, I think, wow, you know, probably could have done a second degree or learnt a, a language. You know, I, I think we... We all could have done we, that. We, we oh, just yeah. spent a lot of time. I don't know what we all did in our 20s, no. but um, <laughs> we had so much time. I can probably guess what we all did. <laughs> we did have so much time. Uh, yes, that's a terrible thing. Um, so is there a day where you say, right, I'm no longer a dancer, I'm now a, yes. a choreographer? Or a, there was a day I... Uh, I was asked to come and direct a dance organisation that was attached to Riverside Theatres in Parramatta. Robert Love, who is such a wonderful mentor to so many, uh, a wonderful sort of entrepreneur, programmer, um, arts administrator, and he gave me the job and he knew I didn't really have a lot of um, corporate experience, but to come in and work with him to program the dance and the physical theatre at Riverside. And uh, I, I cherish that role. I, I was there for two years uh, before joining as executive producer of a dance company that toured more internationally. But um, having the chance to work at Riverside and program and curate, I was really comfortable in those shoes. Mm -hmm. And whilst I knew I was probably cutting short my performing career a little too early. I was buoyed by the, the intellectual challenge of what was to come. Interesting. Our next piece of music, and, uh, well, this is an interesting one from David Lang. Olivia. Yes. Well, with the love of postmodern music, of course, one can't go past the great Philip Glass. And um, David Lang is, is a student prodigy of Philip Glass, you know, like there, there's a lineage that goes down. And I was Going to New York, now this would have been around 2013, 2012. I'd just arrived in New York that morning. I was going to a conference and somehow I ended up in a loft in Greenwich Village sitting on a bunk bed surrounded by people in this kind of round room watching a dance piece to live instrumentation of musicians performing David Lang's piece, Sweet Air. 
in this at this loft party. It was the most wild night. I just bumped into artists who knew artists. He said, you should come to this recital. And I had no idea whose house I was in. I was in David Lang's apartment in Greenwich Village <laughs> watching a live recording of Sweet Air with all this postmodern choreography uh, going on to it. And um, it's a piece of music I really love. And last year I asked if Ensemble Offspring and other collaborators would perform it, and they did in a concert series at uh, the Drama Theatre with the Asko Schoenberg Ensemble. Sweet Air, the second movement of David Lang's Child. The performers were Sentieres Selvaggi, and that was the choice of my guest in conversation today, Olivia Ansel, director of the Sydney Festival. Get along to sydneyfestival.org.au to find out everything that's on as part of this year's festival. Olivia, as I said at the top of the program, you've also had an involvement with the other major arts festival in Sydney, which appears at the opposite time of the year, and that's Vivid. Tell me about your involvement with that one. Yes, yeah, so uh, when Vivid very first, when it first started, they identified these creative catalysts, and um, for some reason, I was identified as one of them. And Jess Scully had a whole talk series at the MCA that I was invited to be part of, which was wonderfully exciting. Many years later, I conceived and co-produced an immersive experience about the history of Sydney and King's Cross called Hidden Sydney, and that was invited to be part of Vivid. Uh, as part of that, we did a talks program called. King's Bloody Cross, which I also curated. And I had a wonderful time researching the live music history, you know, from, from Judy Bailey at the El Rocco mm. and the big symphonies that would happen down in the Rushcutters Bay Stadium there and the, the wonderful um, hotel names just escaped me. Um, oh, the Silver Spade Room. Yeah, the Silver Spade Room was this amazing cabaret room in one of the big hotels on um, King's Cross Road up at Potts Point there. And they had everyone from Ingelbert Humperdinck to Dusty Springfield and Frank Sinatra. It was across the road from the Sheraton where the Beatles stayed. And I was obsessed with all these stories, these underbelly stories, Abe Saffron, the the snake woman, you know, the the standover men, um, the, the, the disappearance of Juanita Nielsen. And so over four floors in this old terrace townhouse on Bayswater Road, we constructed this immersive experience that told true Sydney stories and engaged a range of composers to write music off, uh, like inspired by really famous poetry, including Kenneth Slessor. 
salsa. You know, you call it ugly, I call it uh, lovely. You know, we we had um, b- beautiful music right throughout. Anyway, it proved to be quite the hit, and it came back three times wow. in the cross. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the building that we performed it in has been earmarked for demolition now. Oh. Uh, I, I did think it was heritage listed, but I'm I think there's rumbles to um to augment yeah. it and you know redesign you know maybe keep the facade. So it, it was at a time 2016 is when we started developing it, and it premiered at the end of 2016 into 2017, a time of great gentrification in that area. And I, I think there's all but nothing of that remaining apart from the Minerva. So it was timely. It's funny how um, those stories about those people, they're the kind of things that our parents talk to us about. And I think that's why they got this mystique about them, you know, Sydney in that in that era. Is that sort of your Definitely. Reaction? And I think, you know, like we'll be talking about Frankie's Pizza in decades to come and saying, oh, there was this fabulous place near Bridge Street, you know, um, the evolution of these clubs. I mean, we've got a show in this year's Sydney Festival called Send for Nelly. And it's about Nelly Small, who was one of Sydney's first cross-dressing cabaret artists and would play in all the underground dens from the 50-50 club, the Booker T. Washington club. We had so many speakeasies and so many brilliant cabaret artists and bands. The Forbes gambling den that was up near Woolloomooloo, that was very famous, an old terrace house. But but that's kind of the the way Sydney rolled. And it's really interesting because many decades later with lockdowns and lockout laws, Hmm. nothing's really changed. No. It's funny though that so often I sort of only hear about some of these places when you've discovered that they're about to close. Yes. <laughs> So-and-so had its last gig on Saturday night. Now, I just want to pick you up on a word that you've used a couple of times uh, in relation to the festival and with the other work, and that's immersive as an experience for audiences. What do you really mean by that? Well, immersive is not passive. So in some way, you as a viewer, consumer or a listener, you're active in the process. In my first festival in 2022, we had an underwater listening experience. And so you jumped in the pool down there at the Boy Charlton Pool and you had pool noodles and you had to rest and sort of float on the pool noodle and put your ears underwater. And we had an electronic, beautiful ambient musical score that you listened to whilst floating. Last year, we presented an opera, Sun and see and audiences had to move around the town hall balcony looking down on a hundred choristers bathing in the um you know synthetic sunlight it was a comment on environment and sustainability uh and 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 this year we have a beautiful choral oratorio a song cycle all celebrating 1930s composers called night songs at coney island and you'll get on a boat listen to a little bit of harold arlen on the way over disembark and walk into a very eerie fun parlour that is the Coney Island fun parlour with artwork by the wonderful Art Barton and sort of be thrown back to a very different time. And that's uh, from the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs, I believe. Uh, Sydney Philharmonia Choirs, 15-piece chamber orchestra that are sitting on the topsy-turvy and 20 young student choristers, children that will be up and down the slippery slides and you'll be walking around all of the fun parlour, you know, the Barrel of Fun, the Hall of Mirrors and the carousels and um, there'll be this eerie lighting and getting a real sense of the loss of innocence because Luna Park was built in the 1930s and it was open just for fun and the gates of Luna Park is a symbol of Western capitalism. They, they resemble the Chrysler building and that's not a mistake, like that was on purpose. But really what was happening is Sydney was conscripting young people to fight in World War II. Mm. So there's images of kids on the roller coaster and this sort of thing and many of those did get conscripted to, to serve in the war effort. So, and, and decades later, of course, Luna Park has its own sinister history with the loss of innocence. So we mm. thought it would be a, um, a very theatrical piece to present. 
Yes, and uh, leave people thinking, I guess. The job you came from to become a Sydney Festival director was at the Sydney Opera House as head of contemporary performance. Can I get a handle of what contemporary meant in that context? In that context, it meant uh, like popular, like modern. So not just contemporary dance, of course, but contemporary is in contemporary culture. Hmm. And that role was to curate and program produce across about nine different genres. So um, dance, uh, music theatre, cabaret, comedy, uh, physical theatre, immersive, cabaret and straight up theatre so long as it has some sort of physical or other art form um, bent to it that married to what we were doing in the remit. And we had to present work in all of the venues at the Opera House, so from the concert hall to the studio, even the Utzon room we used on occasion and the forecourt and finding really interesting work that could sustain longer run seasons or, you know, sometimes it might have been a one or two night stand in the mm. concert hall. I thought that was a broad remit with with all of those genres, but Sydney Festival is all of those genres and more and more. So um, it was a good way to sort of lead up to the Sydney Festival gig, to be honest, because now, like, obviously I have visual art, I have classical, I have every type of music. Mm. You know, the remit just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Was there a particular show or artist you were most proud of to bring to the Sydney Opera House? Many great moments sort of flash through my mind, but a couple of standouts was supporting Australian artists. You know, well before Hamilton played here in Australia, there was a little small to medium company that presented a production of In the Heights at the Hayes Theatre. And uh, many people hadn't really heard of Limo and Miranda. In fact, it came up as a focus group in a meeting pre-us doing that event. You know, we, we engaged a focus group, myself and the programming team and the marketing department. And one of the concerns that, that came from marketing department was what if people haven't heard of Limo and Miranda? You know, what if In the Heights doesn't sell? So how can we fashion the most um, risk-averse marketing plan? So we... We, 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 we put together this great marketing plan. We did, we did the focus group. We worked with this young company. I mean, if you can think of a production of In the Heights in a 100-seat theatre at the Hayes, and what I wanted to do was put it in the concert hall. I was um, in the concert for, hall. For six nights and basically scale it up. And we worked really hard with this small to medium company and, and really supported them. And it, it was just a delight. Yeah. People loved it. It actually sold out before it opened. But the the heart in yes. Lynn's music, um, particularly in the Heights, it's a, it's, a, it's a very different sound to Hamilton. And I remember looking up on the opening night and we were absolutely packed to the very back row of the concert hall, seeing all these sort of Latin American flags waving in the air from community that get to see their own culture on the stage. And the cast just had the best time. And Look, that we, we did that several times after that, is working with young, small to medium Australian companies to help them to scale up their productions, to go into those bigger venues at Sydney Opera House and really give opportunity and mentor young producers mm. to make that happen. Because that was actually before the concert hall renovations as well. It so was. that would have been even harder to it, stage it, a show It like was. That. I mean, you almost have to form like a, um, like, a, like a chain line of people up the stairs. Yes, at five o'clock in the morning to sneak the sets in around the back and onto the stage because there isn't actually a loading dock like there is in the Joan Sutherland Opera yes. Theatre for the concert hall. So so getting any kind of theatrical stage show into the concert hall has always remained quite a challenge, but we do it and we do it with love. Mm. An next piece of music now, Olivia, and uh, this is a lovely one, Still With Me, it's called. I grew up absolutely in awe of, you know, the companies that were the sort of the, the real cutting edges companies of the time and remain to be that. And Meryl Tankard is such a masterful choreographer and uh, she used to collaborate with the Balanescu Quartet 
all the time. And in fact, when I was at university, one of my lecturers there in my final year, John Newton's, also loved the Balanescu Quartet. And there's others, there's Cronus Quartet. You know, there's that whole world of that con- contemporary classical composition. And still with me is such a beautiful piece. And although it was many years ago now that I first discovered it, it never leaves me. Who's still with me? The choice of my guest in conversation today, Sydney Festival director Olivia Ansel. Olivia, earlier you mentioned about the fact that uh, you know, as soon as this festival's over, you you start the sprint to the next one. How late in the piece can you discover a show and say we have to have that? It depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm sure if you ask some members of the team, they'd say June. Um, I I do my best to have the program fully locked by July 31. But um, sometimes there are a few stragglers, I'm not going to lie, or what could often happen is I go to Edinburgh or I see something here in Australia or New Zealand or, you know, somewhere, and I think, oh, that's a must-have. That's mm. that's the one thing I've just always been wanting and I've found it. And it's sort of like a cat that drags something home through the cat door and says, please, can it stay? Yeah. <laughs> Well, but also you've got to be you want you, you want to be kind of up to the minute as well. You want to you say, want to be current, yeah, and, current and you yeah. want to be temporal and current and really on the money and on the conversation, you know. And if you've discovered this incredible artist and it's you've just got to have them. So you, if you can build in that contingency, and and we kind of do do that, you know. There are moments throughout the year where I say, okay. 40% is being locked in today. This is the 40% I can guarantee is going ahead. Yeah. Everybody focus on getting that off the ground. I'll come back with the next 20%, so on and so forth. And so you can kind of ring fence yourself some time for those last two gems. And the other thing is it sort of links back to what you were saying about in the Heights at the Sydney Opera House. You know, the marketing department worried about are we going to be able to fill these shows. How do you really know whether to put something on for one night, two night, three nights a week? 
Yes. I mean, it was, I mean, in that instance, I think there was one member of a focus group that sort of said, um, oh, I don't think I've heard of Lin-Manuel Miranda. And we all sort of panic and think, oh, no, you know, yeah. six, six, six nights in a concert hall, too many nights. But if you're taking something from the Edinburgh Festival, for example, yes. that no one necessarily, unless they're very online in that space, will actually necessarily have heard of. No, it's a really good point. And here's an example. I saw a show in Paris by a wonderful Belgian artist and they did a two-week season totally sold out. Now, Paris is a huge population. Mm. Now, here in Australia, depending on the city, that could be three or four nights for us or two nights for a different city, depending on population. And and it's, yeah, you just have to get a feel for it. Um, of course, there's big regrets uh, when something does sell out and you think, gosh, we could have run for, you know, six weeks. That happened on In the Heights. We were all saying, oh, we should have run for weeks, you know. <laughs> and, and same here, you know, like with the festival, there's much disappointment. But you get a gauge for it. You sort of... Sort of the law of averages, you know, like where has this company toured in the world? How many nights have they performed in this location or that location? Are they a new artist to this community? Does the community know them? Are they known? Are they unknown? And and you kind of have to do a bit of a calculated uh, guess with a lot of risk assessment around it as well. And you win some, you lose some. But yes, it is a glorious problem to have when something's totally booked out. And you know, yeah. But the other problem, I guess, with a festival is because a particular act or show is only on a few times, it doesn't allow for word of mouth. Exactly, and you can do all the word of mouth beforehand and. Um, Share lots of videos on Facebook. <laughs> that, that's right. But, you know, like quite often when I'm doing uh, radio in the mornings uh, during the festival and I often say, here's the hot tip. Today it's a hot tip. Tomorrow it's a regret. So don't miss tonight if you've got the, if you've got the time, yeah. you've got the availability and you can, you can go catch this event. You know, uh, we, we try and give people as much warning. Yeah. I'd like to touch on some of the challenges in putting together something like the Sydney Festival and even perhaps uh, from your time at the Opera House, when things maybe don't quite go according to plan in terms of, you know, maybe there are issues with artists or shows not doing what they're supposed to. I mean, in, in any festival, it's not just a festival organisation alone that lifts a program of this size across a city. We work deeply with cultural partners and stakeholders, uh, you know, from, from arts organisations, artists, individuals, promoters, agents, non-arts organisations, museums and galleries, corporate partners. We're all in it together, playing our part mm. to bring this cultural celebration together in summer. And in anything that big, there'll always be little hiccups or... I call them spot fires to spot fires, spot yes. fires to put out. <laughs> your your job is to be there with your fire extinguisher. <laughs> exactly, and and look, most times, ninety nine percent of the time, a spot fire will pop up because it could be a communication. You know, like somebody didn't know something, and it and it went that way, and it should have gone this way. You know, you you just try and find ways to resolve it. It could be. A logistical issue, and I'm sure you can imagine, given the climate out there for the last couple of years, we've had a lot of um, logistical issues, you mm-hmm. know. But problem solving, yeah, I mean, becomes one, a key strength. I mean, one of the problems was a couple of years ago there was some issues of some artists or some other people boycotting or pulling out because of one particular event. Um, how do you handle that sort of thing? Yes, I mean, in that in that instance, um, some artists boycott the festival. It was in relation to Sydney Festival accepting uh, foreign government money. Uh, from an embassy and um, and how that made artists and, and, and some members of community feel being part of the festival. And look, you know, we, we take those issues very seriously and the board undertook an independent review and then listened to the recommendations of that independent review and, and, and implemented those recommendations. So at the moment, we don't actually accept foreign government funding from anyone mm. um, moving forward. 
we don't we don't have any problem with artists accepting foreign government funding. That's their decision or other companies or other stakeholders. That's totally their decision. But we don't directly accept foreign government money. To put something on. To put something on. That's mm. right. Uh, I want to go back to what you're talking about with the Bach, uh, well, the sort of the mini festival within a festival, <laughs> the Bach temperament thing. I mean, it's interesting that you say, you know, oh, Bach Academy is doing this and Australian Chapel Orchestra doing that. I mean, when you were sort of curating that bit of the festival, do you just invite them to submit ideas of what they can do to add to the Bach temperament week or do you say I need you to do this no I gave them the overarching reason right. I said here's my story I was on a plane and yada yada, yeah. yada you know and you could either celebrate bark or you can deconstruct bark right. let me know what thoughts come to mind and then they all came back with a set list and um and a response and I said look I'll I'll let you know if someone else has come back with the exact same, same idea, idea mm. just so that the repertoire is different. But you know what? Luckily, everybody came back with an entirely different angle and take. And then Benjamin Skepper, co-curator of the program, and myself, we programmed them kind of, you know, like Anna Teresa de Kiersmaker has made several seminal works from light to dark and dark to light. So was Louise Bourgeois at the moment at the art gallery. We went from the celebration to the deconstruction. So uh, we put them in that kind of tonal order, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> well, having talked a bit more about Bach, we have to have some Bach, but this is Bach in a very different form and I absolutely love it. What have you got for us here? This is the Swingle Singers and I just love this piece. I mean, obviously one of Bach's most famous compositions, the well-tempered clavier, but the way they do it and the arrangement of it. And Simon, I woke up in the middle of the night and this had become an earworm and I couldn't get rid of it. I think it took me like two or three weeks and I had to stop humming it in my head. I think I'm just about ready to resume listening to it now, but it's brilliant.
that is just gloriously hilarious. The Swingle Singers with their own very special rendition of J.S. Bach's Prelude Number no. 11 in F from the second book of The Well-Tempered Clavier. And, well, that is not the only one of those they've recorded, Lily Ansel, uh, who's my guest in conversation today, who's made that selection. They are just brilliant, though, aren't they, Olivia? Oh, absolutely. It's such a sort yeah. of jazzy sort of sound. <laughs> yes, the whole collection, the whole anthology <laughs> of what the Swingle Singers have done to Bach. It's, uh, yeah, and it's, and really... it's not just Bach. I, I, I oh, everything. Mozart. I mean, I love the idea of North. I love all of that type of music. So Yes. Mm. Well, anyway, back to this year's festival. Is there an event that you feel is the big sleeper hit that no one's talking about yet, but everyone will remember it from this year's festival? Oh, that's a really hard question because there's just uh, so many. But I will say that Big Name No Blankets is a wonderful new Australian rock and roll theatre show. It's a First Nations work, a brand new world premiere. And it's the story of the Warumpi Band era, Sammy Butcher, George Butcher, and the incredible fame that they had touring around the world. Obviously, they they grew up and started in Papunya in the Northern Territory. And their contemporaries were the likes of Peter Garrett. You know, they, they toured extensively in the Australian rock circuit, but then throughout Europe and North America. And Sammy Butcher, who... Um, has been integral to the collaboration and his granddaughter, Anipa Butcher, have been working with Ilbidgeri Theatre Company to tell this story and it premieres this week and it runs for six performances at the Rosalind Packer Theatre. And what's really interesting too is they get into kind of the how songwriting comes about and um, George Butcher wrote a song about um, his homeland, his country, and many years later, that song by Neil Murray was one of the non-Indigenous band members of the group. He copywrote that. He, he sort of registered it. And he, co- he copywrote the song, if you like, and turned it into My Island Home, which was made very famous by Christine Anu. And I think many Australians believe that Christine Anu may have written that song. Quite often we think if someone performs a song that they've written it, but actually she didn't write it. Neil Murray arranged a new version for Christine. And George Butcher originally wrote that song in language. Mm. And so mm. that melody did come from from the Butcher family. I think Neil had some input on it. But, yeah, they kind of get into that part of the story as well. So it's it's really interesting. It's a really powerful piece. And I know uh, with iconic hits like Black Fella, White Fella, so many different pieces of music in the show and the story and the history of these iconic Australian musicians, mm. that, that'll be a really special moment for Sydney Festival. Mm. Now, I know you said that uh, the second this festival finishes, you have to start properly planning 2025, but I'd hope that there is at least a day in between the end of this festival and the start of preparation for the next. What will you do on that day to chill out? Oh, goodness me. I I know it sounds really sort of textbook that one would just, you know, go get a massage, have a sleep in, have lunch, but you literally walk around like a bear with a sore head or a headless chicken. The adrenaline that builds within you over the month of January that takes months of build up, and then, of course, you roll the festival out. Out. Uh, I can't quite explain the come down and the way what happens to the body when the <laughs> adrenaline seeps out of you. You sort of walk around aimlessly and irritable. Like it's really, it's really not a pleasant experience. It does take weeks, if not like a whole month, to get back to ground zero. Um, and and it's hard to just you can't just stop and go. Okay, I'm going to relax. Yes. Let's read a book. Let's relax now. Have a cup of tea <laughs> um, and do nothing. It's it's quite the come down. Something which most of us use, to, many of us use to relax, is to go and see a show, say, to enjoy ourselves. Now, someone such as yourself, can you ever just go and see 
a show or are you always effectively working? Are you always assessing its viability? Even if it's, you know, just something at the Opera House that's never going to be part of the Sydney Festival for next year, are you always looking at it through that lens? Oh, look, I can just go and enjoy a show. Yeah. I can go and appreciate the artists on stage. In some ways, if it's something that for whatever reason – I could never program it because it's already programmed. It's on, right? Yeah, it's on now. Um, then I, I go to just enjoy it and support those artists. But it's also great. I never regret anything that I see because I learn about an actor I didn't know about or I, or I see a most incredible musician who'd, whom, whom I didn't know or I hear a piece of music and I discover a composer. So in a way it, it's, it's really interesting and, and quite exciting when the pressure's off sometimes and I can appreciate – other parts of a performance. I might go to an opera, which obviously I'm not going to do. Maybe it's the ring cycle, but I, I, I fall in love with the conductor or the most amazing lighting mm. designer. So there's always, you're always finding ways to collaborate. And that's whether it's on or off the stage. It could be in conversation or doing something really normal. And you suddenly think, oh, that looks great. I could turn that into an outdoor something or other, you know. Mm. Well, Olivia Ansel, it's been absolutely wonderful having you here today. But before I let you go, there is one final piece of music for you to introduce. And, uh, well, this is a name you've already mentioned, and that's Elena Katz-Channon. Oh, I love Elena's work. And she's such a generous artist. She's an incredible composer to work with. Last year, Elena Katz-Channon collaborated with the great Meryl Tankard, actually, for like a, a piece in the Sydney Festival. And look, Elena's journey as a composer, when gr- growing up originally in Russia and her journey, you know, obviously working in Berlin with Barry Kosky and, and many other great directors and composers. Also her relationship to the Australian composer and concert pianist Lisa Moore. I had the pleasure of sitting in a concert watching Lisa Moore and Elena at the Verbruggen Hall and they're, they're contemporaries. They, they studied together at the Con and Elena had composed a brand new concerto that Lisa performed. It was a really special moment also with um, Lisa's life partner in the audience, Martin Breshnik, another wonderful composer. So, you know, I've followed her career with so much inspiration and excitement for what she writes and I still love Green Leaf from Wild Swan's Concert Suite, which was a piece that Eleanor composed, Meryl Tankard choreographed and the Australian Ballet performed. It was such a stunning production and um, it's a gorgeous piece of music. Olivia Ansell, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. Thanks for having me, Simon. Olivia Ansell, director of the Sydney Festival, which is currently underway until the 28th of January. In particular, check out the Temperament series, which deconstructs the work of J.S. Bach on from the 25th to the 28th, which includes performances by the Australian Chamber Orchestra, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, Bach Academy Australia, as well as the intriguingly entitled Bach in Colour, brought to you by one of my fellow presenters here at 2MBS, the multi-talented Andrew Bikenya. For those details and for the festival more broadly, visit sydneyfestival.org.au. There's also loads of free events as well as the ability to experience some events online. That's the program for today. Listen to the show whenever you like at 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation or via the free 2MBS app available on iOS and Android. You can also subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Just search 2MBS In Conversation. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network.